Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you're just heading into work or otherwise have to move on with your day, you can still hear today's full edition of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today. You can listen to us when you want to and wherever you want to. Okay, uh, dozens of people cheered in New Orleans early this morning as a statue that honors Confederate President Jefferson Davis was taken down. It had stood for more than 100 years. It's the second of four statues slated for removal in the city. One of the others honors Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Despite the cheers, the plan to remove the statues has also created a lot of controversy in that city and across the country. What should we do with monuments or plaques or statues that are erected to honor deeply flawed historical figures? Some people represent such horrific moments in our history that there's little question about ridding our public spaces of landmarks that honor them. But what about slaveholding founding founders? What about more recent public officials who accomplished great things for our nation but who did little to hide deeply racist Worldviews. Where do we draw the line, or should we be drawing the line at all? Uh, is is it right? Is it necessary? Or is this a form of historical censorship? And is there context that we can put these monuments or statues into that might help us all understand and be able to talk to each other, frankly, more honestly about history? and the way it informs the way we live now. As I just said, the city of New Orleans is embroiled in this sort of debate over these statues, but you could have that same talk here in the city of Detroit. Think of the things that we have around us that remind us of people whose lives were complicated, who maybe accomplished great things, but also were deeply involved in racism or slavery. Jefferson Avenue. Washington Boulevard, Wayne State University, Cobo Hall. All of these things, all of these names carry with them the weight of the actions that the people who had those names did during their lives. And it's not always simple. So we want to spend the hour, most of the hour today, talking about this question. How do we come to grips with monuments and statues and plaques that honor people whose lives were complicated, complicated by race, complicated by racism, complicated by slavery. And of course, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. What would you do if you were in the city of New Orleans about these Confederate monuments? What do you think we should do here in the city of Detroit or in Michigan about the things that honor people whose legacies are sort of riddled with involvement with racism or slavery? What would you do? And do you think we should do anything at all? Some people, I think, believe this is all okay. 
and that's all right too. We want to hear from you as well. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll try to work your comments into the conversation. And joining me to help lead this conversation is Kadata Williams. She is an associate professor of African-American history at Wayne State University. Kadada, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, you and I were talking before the show about how complicated this is, how difficult it is to deal with. And I'm going to give you a chance up front to admit your own difficulty dealing with these complications. Uh, it's not easy to figure out uh, how to deal with these things or how not to, right? Uh, that's one question, but but I, I think it connects to the difficulties we have even talking about these things and even acknowledging that history in this country is so imbued with the original sin that was committed here, the idea of uh, racial inequality that was baked into the founding of the country just continues to confound us 240-some years later. Right, and I think that a lot of what that a lot of what this debate reveals is not only are the sort of complexities of history, but also the decisions about power in the production of history. And so there are certain histories that are seen as baked in, you know, like the history of the founding of the country. But that history that seems so predetermined, so perfectly established, is actually a lot more complicated, and it doesn't engage oftentimes the history of slavery sure. or the history of settler colonialism. And so what we've seen in the past you know, 20 to 40 years is an effort to come to terms with that, an effort to sort of stitch this uh, more complicated, more horrifying reality into the history of the nation. And what we see is a lot of pushback because there are people who are committed to these earlier, older, sanitized, whitewashed histories Mm -hmm. of the United States. And they resist. They put up a big stink about the production of this history. And in the case of like New Orleans, what a lot of the advocates for keeping the monuments will not acknowledge is the actual more complicated history of the Civil War and even the context in which those monuments were erected. Yeah. So there's a history to everything. And I think what we need to do is to have much more honest conversations about that yeah. and the complexities that go into So, So that. let's talk about what's happening in, in New Orleans. You've got uh, statues there. I've, I've seen them. I, I spend a fair amount of time in that city. Uh, there are square. I mean, these are not just uh, uh, statues, you know, hanging around in, in odd places. There are squares in the city parks uh, where the central figure in those parks is one of these monuments to somebody like Jefferson Davis or, or Robert E. Lee. Th- there's no way to deny that that's part of the city's history. It's part of the South's history. Is it okay to, to to just take them down and pretend that that history didn't exist. Is that the right way to be thinking about correcting what what clearly is is a problem in the sense that there's really not a whole lot of context around them? Can we just wipe it away? Well, I'll admit my own sort of mixed <laughs> feelings about this. Uh, to be honest, I'm all over the place um, with this issue. But I'll say that for New Orleans, 
and the way they have chosen or the way they chose to memorialize the Civil War and white supremacy, the specific way they chose to do it, um, I think merits relocating the monuments into a place like a museum where you can provide the proper context uh-huh. around them. In other instances, so I So in other advocate, words, like not don't put them up in the middle of a park and just have a statue there. I mean, you know, if you're going to do it, like normally I would support counter memorials, counter monuments. So you're going to use that space and you're going to put counter histories, histories that reflect the um, realities of slavery in the context of the war, the experiences of enslavement, um, the fact that these statues were erected in the context of white terror campaigns to strip away the gains that African-Americans made after the Civil War. Now, if you're going to provide counter memorials in terms of like having a memorial square um, that engages all of this history, then I would be on board with that. But what I know is that a lot of the supporters of the Confederate monuments would not tolerate that. There is a long history of defacing and vandalizing African-American monuments. And even if you put them in that space as counter memorials, they would be subjected to vandal- you know, vandalism. Right. And so that's why I think uh, relocating them to a museum where you can provide the context in a much more controlled setting is a more appropriate way to sort of preserve um, this part of the history. Right. I'll also say that what we're not acknowledging is that, yes, is it part of the U.S. history? Yes, is it part of Southern history? Um, yes, it's part of it. But the version they have chosen to tell is a distorted one. And that's these where These are heroes see, in it, that version. Exactly. You know, um, but, you know, and they can continue to, they can lionize them, they can deify them. But what they have been able to do is to do it without pushback. You know, because, you know, African-Americans were not consulted when these monuments were erected. Right. They were in very vulnerable positions. And so they didn't have an opportunity to sort of weigh in today because of more education, more um, more education, more political power. African-Americans and their allies can push back against this history. Right. Uh, And that's really important. But again, the key is that they have chosen a really uh, a thin sliver of the history and even with what they've chosen distorts a lot of it of yeah. what historians know actually took place. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the difficulty here is, as I said, connected to this greater difficulty around those narratives. Do, do you feel like we're getting closer to a place? I mean, we've had a lot more, I think, robust racial conversation in this country in the last couple of years than I can remember maybe in the last 10 or, or 20. Are we getting to a place where where we're closer to understanding how all of these things are, are affected by history, how, how imbued our own history in the country is with race. I mean, the, what's going on in New Orleans is disappointing, I guess, in, in, in some ways because it does seem like it is just a shouting match between the sort of two extremes. Uh, but, but it takes place against the backdrop of this, this conversation that I think we're trying to have that says – there's a better way to think about all of these things. The, the, the extremes are, are, are the problem. Right. And I think you're right. We have seen more education in terms of more and better education in terms of the centrality of slavery to the nation's founding and to its um, and to its you know sort of growth and expansion over time. So we've seen more education and that education is 
what enables people to be in those spaces and push back. I also think that um, with more records available, historical records available online, mm-hmm. you know, people who might have bought the um, the argument that the war had nothing to do with slavery today, they can go online and read the Confederate Constitution. Sure. Today, they can go online and read Jefferson Davis speeches, linking the Confederate cause directly to slavery. Yes. And so, in my experience, when more people see those records, those historical records for themselves, that forces them to reconsider. Yeah. The challenge with the people on the other side is that many of them have not even bothered to study the history. So their claims <laughs> to honoring their ancestors are more than a little suspect because they haven't even bothered to read the historical documents. Um, and to me, that's tied in to their support for white supremacy. Right, right, yeah. I mean, that makes it that makes it a, a more difficult thing if people just don't even accept truth or fact as as the way to inform what they're thinking. Right. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Kadata Williams. She's an associate professor of African-American history at Wayne State University. We are talking about monuments and statues and plaques that honor people whose accomplishments are also quite besmirched by their deep involvement with racism or slavery. Uh, the city of New Orleans right now is in the middle of a pretty heated debate over the removal, the planned removal of some Confederate statues. President Jefferson Davis's statue came down earlier this morning amid some cheers and some protest. How should we be dealing with these symbols? How should we be dealing with things that honor people who have these complicated histories, not just in the city of New Orleans, but think about Southeast Michigan. Think of the things that we have around here that are named for people with complicated legacies. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Aaron on Facebook says, yes, the statues should be removed. They glorify evil actions. It's not a form of censorship because the statue alone doesn't describe history and only gives the context of how people feel about what the historical figures did. But Jacob on Facebook says it erases the great and terrible things that have happened in the past by relegating them to the desolate corner of a museum, something that uh, Kadada Williams just suggested might be a way to deal with these things. Uh, Jacob continues, uh, Jefferson Davis and Robert Lee are excellent examples. They fought their government for flawed, even repulsive reasons. But when they were defeated, they spent the rest of their lives pursuing reunification and reconciliation with their brothers to the north. Not sure that's true. Uh, To tear down these monuments is an active effort to paint our ancestors as monsters with no redeeming qualities because truth requires that we take their legacies as a whole, which would involve seeing virtue in men we fought, if not their reasons for fighting. Jacob, thank you very much uh, for that very complicated <laughs> and, and, and complex read of that. Kanata Williams, I want to give you a chance to respond to those two thoughts. Well, I'll, I'll start with the second one. Um, I think he's right in terms of acknowledging that, and this is something I tell my students, people are messy, right? Yes, we, all as, humans. You know, as human beings, we are really complex. And if 
the creators of the monuments were willing to, when they, when they established the design, if they were willing to bring in the full scope of Jefferson Davis's, or the sort of the full complexity of his life, then that would be one thing. But that's not what they're doing. That is not what they have chose to memorialize. Um, they did not do this in 1867. They didn't do this in 1871. They erected these monuments during a time of white terror campaigns against African-Americans. Yes, in the 1900s. Exactly. And so so that's not even... Um, so on the one hand, I understand where he's coming from. But on the other hand, I would argue that it's it's less appropriate to apply to this situation because yeah. they're not acknowledging the full complexity. Right. Of the context of the putting the monuments yeah. there themselves was also an act of oppression against African-Americans. It was not a uh, an honoring of history so much as it was an intimidation tactic in, in some cases. Exactly. In many cases, I mean, you think about the monument to um, the Colfax massacre, which reads, um, it pays tribute to the, quote, memory of the heroes who fell in the Colfax riot fighting for white supremacy. Wow. So that's for... <laughs> right the, there on That's the right there on their right. monument. Right. So, you know, at least, you know, in that case, in some cases, they're really obvious. They're really honest about what they are doing, what they're memorializing. Yeah. Um, but to the callers or to the writer's point, if there are opportunities to provide counter histories, counter monuments in the same space, then that would be a way to sort of acknowledge the full humanity, acknowledge the full complexity. But again, the people who are often the diehard advocates of these monuments would reject that history. They would reject or gaslight conversations that provide historical context to the men that they're honoring or to the establishment of the monuments, and they would be the ones who would play a role in defacing and vandalizing the counter-monuments. So that's why I make the argument for a museum being a space. In other places, counter-memorials or counter-monuments would be perfectly appropriate. But in the context of the Confe- you know, this memorialization of the Confederacy, because it links back to the original sin, sure. it's, less, um, it's less appropriate, I think, for counter-monuments to be the only solution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, on the phones, 313-577-1019 to join the conversation here. 313-577-1019. Let's go to Roger in Oak Park. Roger, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, great to be here. Hey. So when you talk about racism and promoting people, how do you, in Southeast Michigan, how are you going to uh, look at Coleman Young? Well, tell me how you look at Coleman Young. He promoted racism. Can you give me, an, ex- di- can you give me an example of that? I wanted the difference between one side of 8 Mile and another side of 8 Mile. Made that comment many times. He said what now? Uh, the differences of being on one side of 8 Mile or the other side of 8 Mile. You know, they created uh, a little bit of tension. I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure which quote you're trying to, to recall I'm not trying to quote, I'm not trying to quote anything or, or anything in specifics, but that was a man who promoted racism. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I I need you to give me an example, Roger. If we're gonna if we're gonna have a discussion about that, I mean, a, a lot of people believe that about Coleman Young, and my my question to them is always, well, tell me what he said or did that promoted 
racism. I mean, the, the, this was somebody who, without question, uh, wanted to assert the equality of African Americans in a city where that equality had been denied for 250, 260 years. Uh, and in so doing, uh, that brought him into conflict with policies that had stood for a long time or cultural norms that had stood for a long time. I, I think equating those with racism is probably is probably not accurate, and, and at least from my point of view. But I'm but again, I'm always open to the the idea that, uh, that I'm not seeing something or I don't see it the same way you do. If you could give me an example of what he said or did that was racist. Uh, you know, we we uh, I'm more than happy to talk about it. Um, uh, Kadada Williams, I mean, this is this is a, this is another dimension of this question, which is, uh, uh, you know, are African Americans also guilty of of these sins, uh, which a lot of people think uh, they are, and that that politicians like Coleman Young are just as guilty as somebody like Albert Cobo, for instance, who was a, a prior mayor, uh, deeply, deeply racist and pursued racist policies. How do we how do we answer those those kinds of accusations? Well, I think at least in this case, I would agree with you in asking for a specific example of a policy Coleman Young advocated that did harm to white people. Uh-huh. You know, that resulted in them losing access to education, right. that resulted in them losing access to um, home ownership, uh, losing access to decent services in their communities. Show me the policy. Show me the statement. Show me the, the piece of um, policy that harmed white Detroiters or white Metro Detroiters in the same way that systematic discrimination in education, housing, employment, outright racial hostility, white terror in the form of um, attacks and threats on African-Americans attempting to move into certain neighborhoods. Show me those examples. And what we know is that it's rare that you can find those examples. Now, that's not to say that African-Americans are saints, right? We need to acknowledge uh, African-Americans' full humanity, the good, the bad, the ugly, too. But in this case... Show me the policy where Coleman Young actively went out and advocated policies that harmed white people, not might have meant that they had to share the American pie with other people. Yeah, I think that's the problem and is that's the that, that you know, for so long in this city, not exclusively, but but certainly to a to a very strong degree, you had an imbalance where white Detroiters had advantages that black Detroiters just never ever had an opportunity to to enjoy. And Coleman Young is the first mayor at least really to to not just uh, not just pursue through rhetoric the idea that it should be differently, but through policy uh, to say we're going, for instance, he said, my cabinet is going to be 50 percent black and 50 percent white because that is a shared power arrangement. Before that, 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 no one had ever even suggested that that should be the case. Now, if you are, I suppose if you're white in that circumstance, that may look like unfairness because you're used to it being the other way. I don't think it quite equates with uh with racism, though. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. We get a lot of folks who want to join this conversation on the phones, a lot of comments on Facebook as well. We'll get to all that when we come back. Uh, stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313 577 1019. We'll be right back on Detroit Today.
Your city. Your town. Your voice. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Kadata Williams. She's an associate professor of African-American history at Wayne State University. We're talking about monuments and plaques and statues that honor people who have complicated histories in the city of New Orleans. They are taking down Confederate monuments uh, to people like President Jefferson Davis and General Robert E. Lee uh, because they say that uh, their involvement with slavery uh, is problematic and it's not a proper way to deal with that, to have a statue of these people, in some cases in, in very big public parks in the city. We're talking about how you deal with these issues. How do you deal with people whose legacies are complicated? Uh, do you just put up statues and monuments and not say anything more? Or is there a more nuanced, sophisticated way we might start a racial dialogue about these things and acknowledge both the good and bad in other people? Uh, if you want to give a, a call, join the conversation, it's 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work your comments into the conversation. I want to start this segment uh, with a quote from Coleman Young, who we just had a caller point out that his belief is that, that Coleman Young's legacy is one of those difficult legacies to deal with that, uh, that he did or said things that were racist too. And the caller wanted to know how we would deal with that. I, I pressed the caller for an example of what Coleman Young did or said that was racist. He wasn't able to provide it, but I think he he, he hinted at the idea of this divide of 8 Mile that, that Coleman Young saw, one side of 8 Mile one way and the other a different way. And I think that owes to a misquote of something that he said in his first inaugural speech uh, about 8 Mile. And I want to read the quote. Uh, and we're going to put it on our Facebook page and keep it up there so that we have the actual quote uh, and that we don't keep falling into this trap of uh, assuming something uh, is true when it's not. So this is what Coleman Young said in his first inaugural. He said, I issue a warning to all those pushers, to all ripoff artists, to all muggers. It's time to leave Detroit. Hit 8 Mile Road. And I don't give a damn if they're black or white or if they wear superfly suits or blue uniforms with silver badges. Hit the road. Now, that seems to me a quote to say, look, this is going to be a city where we're going to have law and order. I mean, itself a pretty loaded phrase, uh, uh, but, but certainly somebody who's saying, uh, I'm going to keep people in the city of Detroit safe. And if you want to behave in a way that threatens that, you got to leave. That quote has been uh, distorted so many times uh, by people who have said to me, Coleman Young told all the white people to hit 8 Mile Road. Well, that quote doesn't say that. It doesn't even come close to saying that. And I think one of the things that's uh, really important if we are going to have these conversations is fact and truth and the acknowledgement of fact and truth. And that is the truth of what he said. So uh, again, uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Kadata Williams, go ahead. I just want to say really quickly, I also think that when we talk about Coleman Young, we need to acknowledge that he's talking about or he's responding to the long context, the long history of refusal to share power and resources in the city of Detroit. Sure. 
And it's not even something that is just past. It is a fight that he has to continue to wage throughout his, his entire mayoralty. Exactly. Yes. Throughout the entire period. Yeah. Uh, let's go to let's go to Norris on the west side. Norris, welcome to Detroit today. Hello. Good morning, uh, uh, everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and thanks for this conversation that you all are having. It's, it's very insightful, and I think it's important we talk about it. Uh, my comment is simply that uh, for the monuments down in New Orleans, I think we should look at an example of, of, for example, Nazi Germany and their treatment of uh, their sordid history uh, during the Second World War and the rise of, of Hitler. If you look at that and you, and you realize that they acknowledge as a country that this is a, a, a dark stain on their history and they don't erase it, but they do treat it with, you know, the amount of uh, care and I don't want to say vitriol, but they understand the context. I see here in the United States that we have a refusal to look at the Civil War with the same type of attitude. We refuse to look at it and see that there was a side that was completely all right with going to war over the economic benefits of having slaves. We have a refusal of an entire section of the country for people to acknowledge that. And until we get to a point to where people will acknowledge, acknowledge that, we're going to see this this pushback. And mm-hmm. and I also want to push back on this on this notion of, of these alternate forms of history. The, no, history is history. <laughs> this is what happened. You know, it, that's what happened. And, and so while I understand, you know, that there's multiple viewpoints, there's winners and losers, what happened is what happened. Yeah. And the Confederacy did not win that war. <laughs> and unfortunately, they're going to have to deal with that, the people who support this. Yeah. I, I don't understand this concept of, of this alternative yeah. facts and alternate history. No, right. what happened is what happened. Right. Norris, and, that, that's, a great, uh, that's a great, great point. I'm glad you called him in. And I'm sure Kadada Williams, who teaches history, <laughs> would, would, would strongly agree uh, would strongly agree with you. Uh, you know, uh, Kanata, I, I am one of these people who is very, very skeptical of comparisons to Nazi Germany, right? It's very difficult to, to make that comparison. It's it probably the most evil regime, uh, at least in, in, in modern times, that, that any of us knows. But at the same time, I think Norris did a really good job uh, in his in his comments there of showing how this connects. I mean, he's not equating the Confederacy to Nazi Germany. He's saying that the way we have come to reckon with the evil that inspired that Confederacy uh, is is very different from the way Germany came to reckon with, uh, with what happened in the Second World War. Right. Um, and I think he's absolutely right, and I appreciate his call. The challenge that we have in the United States is that you have a lot of people who historically have been and are still in positions of power where they can make sure that we don't have accurate uh, representations of the past. Sure. We even have textbooks that are published in 2016 and 2017 that represent enslaved Africans as African immigrant workers, mm-hmm. right? So there is a strong and powerful opposition that is committed to sanitizing to this an history. Narrative. To an you know, exactly, to an alternative narrative. And the challenge is that they cannot be persuaded with facts. And until we have lawmakers who will do what Germany was willing to do, <laughs> which is pass legislation, um, that supports, uh, you know, appropriate education 
and establishes policies or consequences for misrepresentation of that past, then we're going to continue fighting these issues. The beauty is that we do have more people like Norris who are educated. Uh, The challenge is that there's still the opposition and that that process of getting more people who are educated, who are willing to receive the actual past or the understanding um, that professional historians know, um, getting more of those people on board, getting them educated is long. It's a long and difficult process. We are um, better off today than we were 10 years ago, than we were 20 years ago. Um, I think that 10 years ago, if the Charleston massacre occurred, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have the same response in terms of even people being in a position where they can say we need to rethink the Confederate monuments. We are there today in large part because of better historical education. The challenge is that as as much as I agree with that, I'm an educator. um, I want that to be enough. (laughs) I just know that it's not. It's not. Well, and and we have in the current political discourse, we have an emergence of an aggressive campaign to destroy the, the the credibility of truth and fact and to blur the lines such that that people don't believe that there are, are such things as fact or truth, that, that I can have a set of facts and you can have a set of alternative facts, and that that somehow is okay uh, in, a, in a society that pr- prides itself on uh, on freedom of information, right? Uh, on on the idea that uh, that anyone can say what they what they want to say. Of course, I would argue that this is also a society that's built on uh, the idea of truth winning out, uh, and that uh, this assault on the idea of truth uh, sort of tears at that at that fabric. Um, it makes it very difficult. Well, I guess what I would say is that, again, everything has a history. And this distortion of this alternative Not history, yeah. alternative fact, is it has a history, too. Uh, and a history that we can trace right back to the Confederacy. Sure. They chose alternative facts <laughs> to justify going to war. After they lost the war, they chose alternative facts about how they were going to represent what happened. Yes. They played a role in saying, well, you know, it, it wasn't slavery. It was states' <laughs> rights. Right. Or, you know, and what matters more than that we lost the war? What matters more is that our men fought really hard. You know, and so it became this um, commitment to valorizing the Confederate cause by what the men did, not why they did not what why. they did. And who were the victims. And yeah. who the victims of that were. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Otis in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, the thing that uh, galls me most about the city of Detroit is, and it's really kind of personal because every summer um, it's a blemish on a greatness of Coleman Young is that he named the park, Shane Park. Shane was a slaveholder, and it bothers me that black folk go down there every Sunday, every <laughs> summer, party, party, and you're partying on the <laughs> on a place that was named after the slaveholder. Right, right. Uh, uh, Otis, you're of course absolutely right about who Shane was, uh, and and you know I would argue that that the the reason it has that name is because that's the street that dead ends. Uh, there at the at the river, but but Kanata here again is the is the is the right way to respond to that to say and and I'm not telling Otis how to live his life, but I but I but I think it's an extreme reaction to say you'll never go there. But should we be doing something to try to put that in context? I bet a lot of people don't know, for instance, who Shane was. Right, I bet a lot of people don't know, and I think I wouldn't change the name of the park. 
Um, but I would advocate for um, some, you know, maybe historical marker that uh, provides a little bit of the um, context of who Shane was. Yeah. Uh, and the sort of that, the, but does it in the way that acknowledges the, his full complexities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he's not one thing. He's right. all of these things. Right. Uh, let's go to Aaron on the West side. Aaron, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, hey. this is so wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and, and, your guest is very good at articulating. That, that uh, she is. <laughs> and I'm glad that uh, it took a while for me to get on because some of the callers uh, really helped, too. Even the ones who I disagree with, they, they show the the uh, uh, the inability of some of the, the citizens of our country to accept this new reality. This is what I want to say about the whole thing. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's very difficult for for the humans condition to uh, be told that they're wrong about something when you there's no uh, painless way to tell someone that your hero is not a hero there's no (laughs) painless way to tell somebody who they look up to that they shouldn't be looked up to Uh, and so it's not going to be accepted but I think the bigger picture is is that uh, in this country uh, the for the most part uh, when you're still doing something or trying to hold on to a belief, it's hard to acknowledge that that belief is wrong if you're still doing it. People will admit when they've gotten past something and don't do it no more that it was wrong. <laughs> but if they're still doing it, they don't want to admit that it was wrong. So a... then they create this alternative fact thing or rationalize it or whatever. See, what's happening is is that... Uh, not only in, in the South and with these monuments, but in this country, period, uh, whites and some of uh, uh, the people who are in power are struggling with accepting that you have been wrong all of this time and we need to start changing the the way that we look at each other and the way that we treat each other and the way that we look at history. Sure. It was wrong. It has always been wrong. And it will always be wrong to treat a person differently as property or as less than simply because they are of a different culture. Sure, but, absolutely. Uh, I, and I'll leave. I'll leave with this example: uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh-huh. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement came into effect because uh, blacks felt like an, uh, an abnormal amount of blacks were being uh, uh, slain for for reasons of just being black, and so they they said our lives matter. Now, the other side said, oh, that's a hate group. Right. And see, that's their reality. If you ask for equality or if you ask to be looked at in a way that uh, uh, says that I'm valuable, no, you don't get to ask that. You're wrong for asking for equality because you'll never be equal to us. (laughs) Right. Right, and that's the problem. Aaron, great, uh, great comments on the call this morning, and, and thank you very much uh, for calling in, uh, Kadada Williams. I want to give you a chance to to respond to that, but but I I, I, I want to prime that by by sort of pointing out that one of the things that Aaron is drawing out here is fear, uh, and and the extent to which that drives the responses when we when we try to talk about race and try to put historical context around these things. There is a lot of fear, uh, and I, I think uh, people feel accused, right? They feel as though uh, something may be taken from them or there may be some consequence that comes from that conversation. Well, I think that that fear is rooted in a, you know, 
So this is really complicated. <laughs> so like on the one hand, I understand their fear. They feel that to share the American pie means that they that they get less of it. Mm-hmm. But what they don't acknowledge is the fact that they have had access to a disproportionate amount of the pie at the expense of other people. So their concern about loss is real, and I understand that. But what they're not acknowledging is that they were not necessarily entitled to it in the first place or that they got it at the expense of someone else. What I'll also say is that no one is saying that you should not honor Jefferson Davis. No one is saying that you should not honor Robert E. Lee or even Martin Luther King Jr. or Coleman Young. But as a historian... My argument is that the real way to honor them is to acknowledge the full complexities of who they were, yeah. right? right? Not choosing a sanitized version or of uh, Coleman Young, acknowledging his complexities as a man who walked the earth, who made mistakes, but who also tried to do good for the city. Um, so I would say that we need to sort of make sure that we're trying to acknowledge the full humanity of people that we, um, we try to memorialize. But yes, people who are concerned about um, people who are concerned about the removal of monuments, people who are engaging in uh, these alternative facts, these alternative histories, are afraid. Um, but that fear is, like I said, it needs to. What we need to make sure that we understand is that they don't understand the extent to which they have gotten these um, gains and privileges at the expense of other people. At the expense of other people, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. All right, as always, Kadada Williams, Associate Professor of African American History at Wayne, thank you very much for joining us on Detroit Today. We'll have you back soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes. All right, up next, we're going to continue talking about uh, race in the context now of Michigan's largest public university and a new effort to increase diversity there. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <laughs> 